He talks about the the I, the investors overseas service, which I guess was like kind of like it, it was one of the world's largest mutual funds, but I guess it eventually sort of collapsed in uh, scandal and corruption, and it was used for a lot of like shady financing uh, for projects like this. I might just skip over this, but yeah, there is a mention here of Dr. Tibor Rosenbaum, one of organized crime Swiss bankers. I do believe that Tibor Rosenbaum had a certain kind of relationship with President Tubman of Liberia in like the 50s and the 60s. And he was also kind of tangentially connected to these uh, kind of networks. Yeah, Malnick comes up again. He's kind of involved a lot of these like financing arrangements. Pullman, the gangster, and Malnick was recorded by Canadian police in 1966 talking about their investments. They were partners in many enterprises including the Bank of World Commerce. Yeah, Malnick went over Pullman's complicated finances involving several firms and fairly obscure foreign banks. Some people owed Pullman money, including fat Tony Salerno from East Harlem in South Florida. In addition to tax problems, they talked about buying a small Paris casino. Later, the police listened as Pullman discussed the Paris casino with Morris Landsberg, the owner of the plush Eden Rock Hotel, another Lansky associate. So IOS and the Lansky syndicate were very tight. However, IOS did maintain some degree of independence. Tibor Rosenbaum was advising them. And this bank connected to all that fiduciary had two rounds with Mary Carter and Resorts. They took $100,000 of Resorts uh, or Mary Carter's promissory notes in 1966. The clients of the fiduciary growth fund totally owned by Lewis Chesler's son, Alan, and the Traconis Family Trust, whose principal beneficiary was the family of William Mellon Hitchcock. So, okay, now we got to talk about, like, at some point, William Mellon Hitchcock gets involved in this Mary Carter Paint Company Resorts International. Another example of, like, this isn't just mobsters we're talking about. This is, like, real silk topper hours down in the Caribbean. So he writes that stockbroker William Ellen Hitchcock is an American original. He's the grandson of William Larimer Hitchcock, founder of Gulf Oil, and the nephew of Andrew Mellon, whose fortune in the 1920s was somewhere between $1 and $2 billion. Andrew Mellon was ranked second to John D. Rockefeller in power, wealth, and influence in the whole country, wrote Cleveland Amory in his Chronicle of the American Aristocracy. But Billy Hitchcock marched to a more complicated tune than the industrial tycoons in his family. He reached for both an emotional and aesthetic experience nurtured by LSD, as well as the more traditional reverie brought on by conquering the boardrooms of Wall Street. His quest for internal enlightenment was helped by a substantial inheritance and trust fund that provided him with $15,000 per week in spending money. Damn. That money enabled him, yeah, right? Like, that money enabled him to bankroll the manufacture and distribution of LSD. Originally turned on to acid by his sister, the director of the New York branch of Timothy Leary's International Federation for Internal Freedom, if if, Billy Hitchcock gave one of the family's estates to Leary as a center and playground for psychedelic fun and games. Leary, the nation's best-known apostle of LSD, disbanded the Federation and replaced it with something called the Castalia Foundation once he was in place at the Hitchcock Spread in Millbrook, New York. The Millbrook experience, according to researchers Martin Lee and Bruce Schlein, was like a fairy tale. The Hitchcock mansion was transformed into a Victorian ashram. Psychedelic (laughs) art mixed with Persian carpets, dark woods, and crystal chandeliers. Several dozen acid trippers moved in and, quote, people stayed up all night tripping and prancing around the estate. Some dropped acid for 10 days straight. 
even the children and the dogs were said to have taken LSD. Uh, why are yeah, you giving kids LSD? Give, That's us. Yeah. Courtney Love Alert. What the fuck? Yeah, very um, MK Ultra, but also like MK Ultra for dogs, apparently, too. Uh, <laughs> just really, I mean, like, I actually, I was shocked that I didn't realize there was a whole S- LSD fucking angle to this book, but it really does tie yeah. together kind of like everything we've ever talked about. Yes. Um, it's, so y- this is a crazy portion of the book for sure. Um, it is. And it, and, and the, yeah. the, the direct like interlocks with like the susses shit and yeah. Okay. So he goes on, although a devotee of LSD and Leary Hitchcock retained a certain aloofness from the more frenetic acid trippers. He stayed at Millbrook, but chose to live away from the mansion in a sumptuous cottage. From there, he carried on with business, keeping in close contact with investors and brokers. He spent mornings on the phone talking with Bahamian and Swiss bankers, setting up meetings and fast money deals. Those who visited him at Millbrook from the financial world were invariably and routinely turned on. Damn. Uh, The party at Millbrook lasted until 1967 when Leary left for California. By that time, the Hitchcock estate was being fought over by three different bizarre acid sects, including one called the Neo-American Boohoo Church. I hadn't heard that before. It was also constantly watched by the New York State Police. Billy Hitchcock decided to leave and after evicting all the freaks, left for Sausalito, a few miles north of San Francisco. That's also where Stuart Brand lives on his little houseboat. Hmm. You know, like right on the coastline of Marin County, uh, not far from the Golden Gate Bridge. Really the one of the richest areas in the Bay Area and in the country. A lot, a lot of old money up there. So it was then that Hitchcock decided to underwrite two amateur chemists, Nick Sand and Tim Scully, in the manufacture of LSD, STP, and other hallucinogens. They relied upon a most remarkable group known as the Brotherhood of Eternal Love to distribute the drugs. Incorporated in California as a tax-exempt religious entity in October 1966. Damn, is that the same month as the Church of Satan was incorporated? I think Um, so. Like, literally. I think yeah. so. Um, yeah, like, like Halloween 1966. Yes. Uh, wow. Yeah, we've talked about the Brotherhood of, Inter- of Eternal Love before, haven't we? A, a little uh, bit, yeah. yeah. I forget which one, uh, which episode, but Tim Leary kind of went down to like Orange County with them. Yeah, this is for, an incredibly sus group. Uh, I, yeah, they, I mean, he's, yeah. He, he says right here, you know, incorporated as a tax exempt religious entity in October 66, the Brotherhood really was a segment of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang. All right. Very cool, you know, Hunter Thompson, etc. A uh, jackbooted and adorned with various Nazi symbols, the angels added a savage touch to the new church, whose avowed purpose was to achieve a heightened awareness of God, love, and wisdom through the teachings of prophets and wise men, including Christ, Buddha, Ramakrishna, Yogananda, and Mahatma Gandhi. Oh, so they're pacifists. They settled south of L.A. at Laguna Beach, right? Considered something of an artist's colony. Getting in touch with God in one spiritual essence, they felt, was immeasurably aided by large doses of LSD and other drugs. Supported by Guru Leary in his California incarnation, the tax-exempt zealots of the Brotherhood ran the largest illicit LSD ring in the world. The deal between the Brotherhood and the manufacturers was made at Hitchcock's Sausalito home. With the organization set, Hitchcock, mimicking his industrial forebear... Now, I'm going to read that again because it's so fucking good. 
Okay, because like this guy's a hippie. What he has nothing to do with his grandfather, who you know, like ran a huge industrial company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the deal between the Brotherhood and the manufacturers made at the Sausage Home with the organization set Hitchcock, mimicking his industrial forebears, proceeded to rationalize the manufacturing process. He bought property in a small Northern California town and set his chemist to work with new equipment. His arrangement with Sand and Scully called for him to keep them on very modest twelve thousand dollar yearly retainers. They were turned loose in the laboratory, eager to concoct the best LSD ever. Within six months, they had turned out at least 10 million hits of the soon-to-be-famous acid called Orange Sunshine. Hitchcock and Sand went to the Bahamas in the spring of 1968 in preparation for an expected economic bonanza. They stayed with Sam Clapp, who had been one of Hitchcock's college pals. A secret account for the LSD chemist was established at Fiduciary Trust, The acid entrepreneurs were also in the Bahamas to scout locations for a possible offshore LSD laboratory. The family of Mary Carter paint investors from iOS and its affiliates who had connections to Billy Hitchcock was extensive. There was Seymour Lazar, who described himself as a personal associate of Bernie Kornfeld and a friend of Billy Hitchcock. Lazar, called by California acid cronies The Head, also worked with Big Lou Chesler. In 1967, Lazar bought $84,000 worth of Class A Mary Carter paint shares in a private placement. According to the SEC in a later investigation, Lazar and Jim Crosby's friend and broker, Richard Pistel, engaged in security violations for which they were punished in 1973. There was also Fred Alger and his two mutual fund firms, the Alger Fund and Security Equity Fund. The Alger Fund sunk $2.5 million and Security Equity another $950,000 into Mary Carter Paint. This fund was directly related to iOS at this time, and Alger's investments were apparently worked out in negotiations with Clapp, Hitchcock, and Jim Crosby. While Hitchcock worked as LSD Wonders, he was also a registered securities broker, employed first by Lehman Brothers, RIP, and then with the venerable brokerage house of Delafield and Delafield. That financial institution played a key role in the Mary Carter Paint transformation. One of the large transactions handled by Delafield, for instance, involved several companies owned by a fabulously wealthy Greek shipping family named Gulandris. Uh, the Gulandris companies, registered in Panama, invested over $4.5 million in the paint company. So getting lots of money from interesting places. Sam Clapp's wife, by the way, was barred by the SEC in the summer of 1968 for more funny business with Mary Carter stock. There's another guy named J.J. Frankel, who I guess was even more out of control than Hitchcock's LSD syndicate buddies, who committed suicide or was murdered, as his wife claims, in November 1983 by falling out of the window in his Park Avenue apartment. He had a hand in at least $12 million of the $33 million, which went into uh, Resorts International. But he he participated in the biggest transaction of all, the $10.5 million deal paid to Mary Carter for the paint division itself. This was the moment when Mary Carter became a, quote, leisure industry company called Resorts International. This guy actually very bizarre. Okay, I I just want to read a little bit about this guy's bio because, again, kind of interesting. Joseph Jacob Frankel was born in Staten Island in 1937. He went to a New York prep school went to college for a few years. He was first noticed by outsiders in the late 1950s when he was excused for mandatory military service in order to participate in the Eastern European Cultural Exchange Program under the sponsorship of the U.S. State Department. He traveled in both the USSR and Romania, 
This experience, which convinced some that J.J. was an occasional agent for American intelligence, led directly to his becoming a junior impresario in the foreign film industry. He made a substantial contribution to cinematic history by importing the great Soviet film about World War II, Ballad of a Soldier. So again, we go with like weird, like might be an intelligence guy running around Eastern Europe and get, ends up working in Hollywood. Like he imports Soviet movies over just kind of interesting. So he had extensive racketeer connections. He was allied with uh, Fat Tony Salerno in a Bahamian corporation called Sea Pharaoh, which manufactured cement-bottomed boats. Yeah, in one particularly serious situation, his activities unmasked another individual, Joel Mallon, tied to the mob, Resorts International, and Castle Bank. This occurred after an organized crime homicide in New York had sparked an investigation into Automated Ticket Systems Limited, a vending machine company with a suspiciously lucrative contract to supply New York State with lottery tickets. So, yeah, anyways, uh, they were involved in all kinds of shit. A little bit Moving of a backtrack, on. but I think okay. I may have solved our Huntington Hartford issue here. Oh, okay. Uh, I did find Detail. a obituary written about him by a friend of his, I guess, Robert Temple. Okay. He says, this is the obituary the London Independent newspaper commissioned for me by my friend Hunt, but refused to publish. So it goes on about him like at length, you know, and uh, how when he was a young man, he was thought to be the most eligible bachelor in America, etc. because of his AP, uh, A&P fortune and everything. So this is a key passage here. Hunt employed a very nice and amusing fellow named Larry Horn to look after him, who had a peculiarly charming wife whom Hunt, like a true gentleman, never tried to seduce. Larry was completely honest, seriously normal and straightforward, and kept Hunt out of trouble. If Hunt left wads of cash lying around carelessly, he would hand them to him and never pocket anything. Larry and I speculated about Hunt's satiromania, now called, since Michael Douglas, quote-unquote, sex addiction. If Hunt exasperated Larry beyond what he could bear, Larry would call him a, uh, an F-slur. F <laughs> this was how to wound and silent Hunt and make, hu silence Hunt and make him behave. Larry's theory was that Hunt was so terrified that he might secretly be gay that he couldn't stop sleeping with girls compulsively lest he suddenly realized that he might really be a bisexual and go to pieces. So this guy's theory is that he was a closeted sex addict who was trying to escape being gay by ravenously having sex with people all the time. Interesting. Uh, okay, so more like kind of like a Hunter Biden, like <laughs> in the closet well, guy acting out like uh, hunt, everything. <laughs> True. Hunt. 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 Yeah. 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 I mean, it well, makes sense because I guess he would be like in the Cy Alter relationship. He would be the procurer. So, I mean, but it seems like he did have a lot of sex anyway and would just constantly be trying to seduce people. But mm -hmm. maybe those kind of rumors were part of it. But I mean, I guess also it could just be that he constantly had a ton of sex. Yeah, Whether, yeah. You know. Here, actually, interesting to that, just uh, continuing scrolling down here, that after talking a lot about the activities of the financing, the bridge, which I guess even involved like Bebe Rizobo, Bebe Rebozo and like Richard, like payoffs to Richard Nixon and shit like that. He writes that no one was angry and more suspicious about resorts bridge activities than Huntington Hartford, who was still a company director in Paradise Island Limited. In a suit filed in 1973, Hartford charged Resorts International with forcing him out of Paradise Island. He demanded a court order declaring the bridge to be a corporate asset belonging to Paradise Island Limited and asking for a proper accounting of the bridge's revenues and expenses. Hartford was convinced Resorts was operating the bridge to the detriment of Paradise Island Limited, the only part of the complex in which he still held an interest. 
Hartford's anger and his insistence on an accounting of bridge receipts were stimulated to some degree by the malice of his former associate, Cy Alter, who would switch sides and allegiances. After betraying Hartford, he had become an insider close to Crosby, in particular I.G. Davis. A resorts employee noted Alter was always hanging around the Davis office, reminding him of some repulsive dog. The office used to start before breakfast, he stated, and Cy would come to sit across from I.G. Davis's secretary, hacking, spitting, coughing, belching until the poor girl would flee to another part of the building or to the washroom to be sick. Damn. So they, they got his, like, sicko pimp and got him to turn sides. Alter also held important posts at resorts, which were apparently off the books. There was also a claim from Tradewinds agents that Alter really managed the Paradise Island Bridge Company from the time it was built until recently. It was Alter's connection to the bridge which convinced some investigators that Nixon was being paid off with the bridge receipts. They knew Alter was quite friendly with Bebe Rebozo and that he had accounts at Rebozo's Key Biscayne Bank. Suspicion was immeasurably increased when they learned Alter had actually hand-delivered some cash deposits to Rebozo outside normal banking hours. Yikes. Now, this this part has some real gold. Resorts International had a predilection for funny money, often connected to organized crime associates. It also had a preoccupation with corporate security. In 1967, Crosby convinced Robert D. Pelliquin, the Department of Justice attorney who had been investigating organized crime in the Bahamas and written an embarrassing memo about Lansky, and William G. Hundley, formerly Pelliquin's boss, as head of the organized crime and racketeering section of the Justice Department, to join their new team. With the financial backing of resorts, Intertel Inc., standing for International Intelligence Incorporated, was formed. So yeah, actually, he mentioned earlier that Robert D. Pelliquin was an F, I think, either an FBI agent or a DOJ official that had written this memo that got out that was like connecting all of this shit in the Bahamas with like Meyer Lansky. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it like pissed them off because they're like, oh, what the fuck? Like, like they missed, you know, they didn't pay off the right people and that thing got out and embarrassed them. But then they just went and they literally went to like the guy who wrote the report and was the investigator, like when he left government and they're like, yo, you want to like run our private security company? <laughs> and they got it. And so he, he ended up being the head of Intertel, which is like a crazy private intelligence network. He writes that Intertel's primary job, so it was said, was to keep mobsters away from Resorts International. Interestingly enough, however, uh, Sally Woodruff, the informant, found a company with the same name incorporated in New York in 1962, which must have been an organized crime enterprise of some type aimed at the Bahamas. Its officers were publicists Tex McCrary and Lansky syndicate gamblers Frank Ritter and Max Courtney, two of the men who ran the Monte Carlo Casino. The coincidence perplexed Sally, who also had discovered Pelequin's new company used the Bahamian cable, telex, and postal address of the original Intertel. So, yeah, uh, they just recycled the name of, like, a mafia front company, but they're there to stop the mafia from being involved. Uh, Very cool. (laughs) So the progress of Resorts Intertel was spectacular. In addition to security for Paradise Island, its client list by 1971 included most of the Howard Hughes Hotel and Casino Empire in Nevada. That year, Intertel performed security and detective work for several Fortune 500 industrial and communication companies, as well as international financial firms. Intertel then had offices in the Bahamas, Washington, New York, Toronto, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. Specialists from almost every important law enforcement and intelligence service were on Intertel's staff from the start. Secret Service, Customs Border Patrol, New York and LAPD, Department of State, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Interpol, FBI, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, CAA, NSA, and IRS were just some of their former employers. 
Clearly, Intertel hired prominent security officers and former chiefs, several with exceptional political experience and contacts. So yeah, that was uh, basically this kind of like private mercenary outfit that uh, you know kept things safe and also did manage Howard Hughes's security, which is uh, maybe we'll mm. we'll get to that in a sec. Um, but yeah, very shadowy organization, Paradise Island, which emerged from the Aryan grip of Venerkren and the Effet one of Huntington Hartford, to great pains at all times to rhetorically distance itself from criminality. Oh yeah, okay, we have the Howard Hughes shit. In chapter four. Okay, this is interesting actually. Howard Hughes in the early 70s almost buys Paradise Island. But this is like a very bizarre story. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the hour of frequency at patreon.com slash subliminal jihad. I had an ancestor who was like, he was like what Turtle is on Entourage for the Mafia in Chicago. <laughs> That's sick. That's a sick role. But um, he didn't, I don't know, he wasn't very good at it. That's all I'll say. Oh. Not giving up too much uh, family history. Just a little funny, funny thing here. Do you know the name of the Pritzker's holding company that held Hyatt Hotels and Carnival Cruise Line? What? what? Mammon Holdings. Isn't that funny? <laughs> I love. I always love that. That always. It always showed to me that the Pritzkers had a sense of humor that these other fucks like the Waltons don't have. Okay, question for all you guys then. Do you think Alex Jones is a CIA op then? No. Because we aren't. That's at the end of the day. Because right? we have been accused. No, but you don't. But you well, don't here's the thing. People have accused us since the beginning of our show of being some sort of CIA op. And a lot of people have put together very detailed linkages to make a narrative right there involved in the state. My family was involved with the FBI, not the CIA, get it right. All they are, all, all the things that you can tie together, they're, a, they're basically at the same level of like uh, reasoning that you use for all the other conspiracy narratives you're trying to identify in the world. And you apply that rubric to us and it's like, yeah, these guys ring out, these guys stink. This is, I should assume that these people are CIA operatives or whatever the fuck. I but, I know for a fact that I am not, and so that means that like exactly I know what a CIA operates say. But like, I'm just not saying how like my, what I'm op the principles I am ostensibly operating from. You can look like it. think I'm lying or you can think I am. 